Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. You ready to go on the letters of Paul? I don't know if I am, but let's give it a go. We're going to start today in Romans chapter 1 through 6. Now, we're, we're done with the stories in the New Testament, more or less, and now what we have are these letters. And they're exactly what they sound like. They're basically emails written to specific people in a specific place going through specific things. Now, if you or I were to organize these letters, we would do so chronologically. We would go from the letters that were written first, plug them into the stories, and let them kind of speak for themselves in the chronological order. I've even taught them that way before, plugging them into the storyline provided in the book of Acts and going back and forth from the story to the letter. And honestly, I think it's a useful way to understand the context. Go ahead and try it sometime. But that's not how the books or letters are arranged here. Instead, they're grouped by author with the letters Paul wrote coming first, and then they're arranged by length. So the letter to the Romans is not the first letter Paul wrote. It actually comes much later in his ministry. It's most likely he he writes it during his third mission while he's living in Corinth. But it is the longest we have on file and therefore it comes first. Now, usually Paul writes letters to people he knows. I guess that is how we all write letters, right? Unless you're some sort of email spammer. If so, please stop. Um... But this time, Paul's actually writing to a group of saints in Rome and a group of people he's never met before. But he does want to visit, and he thinks it would be a good place to, to take off to the edge of the Roman Empire in Spain from Rome. He thinks it would be a good staging point, a good jumping off point for a new world mission, if you will. Now, even though he has never been to Rome, he does know a bit about the Christian community there. First, as is true in most, in most Christian communities at the time, the local Roman ward is composed of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, there's always been a bit of a division or a tension between these two groups uh, anywhere that Christianity has been established, but the division is particularly pronounced in Rome. See, after the church is established in Rome, Emperor Claudius decided to kick all of the Jews out of Rome because some perceived Jewish political upheaval. Honestly, the Jews are hard to govern sometimes, but frequently the charges are exaggerated against them. So, I don't know. Anyway, all the Jews are kicked out, and that includes the Jewish Christians. Then after five years, the Jews, including the Jewish Christians, are let back into Rome. Well, for five years, the Gentile Christians feel like they've been doing just fine. But the Jewish Christians come back and are basically like, you're doing it all wrong. You can't be a good Christian unless you live the laws that God has given to his people to keep them separate from the stain of the world. You get that, right? Sounds like the type of stuff we would say. Like you got to be in the world, but not of the world. And these laws will help you not be of the world, right? Like you feel them on that? But the Gentile Christians are like, dude, being circumcised and eating bacon have absolutely no bearing on my salvation. I was doing just fine without you. How about you just shut up? And the disagreement between the two is real and heartfelt. Both sides feel very deeply that their positions are correct and critical. 
And they're both so well-intentioned. If it's the thought that can actually counts, then both sides here are batting a thousand. They really are sincere. And it's just like today. Sincerity, though, doesn't actually make you right. But it does fuel conflict and feed the father of contention. It's possible to, to feel like you're completely righteous and be completely a servant of Satan right there because you're serving the father of contention. It's a sketchy thing to passionately tell someone how they should live and feed these assertions with passionate sincerity. It just serves the God of sorrows and causes you to accept worshiping at his altar. And that's not something I want. Anyway, this is the main situation that Paul, and keep in mind that Paul is just a Romanized or Latin version of Saul. Like he's writing to a Roman audience. So he goes by the Roman spelling. Uh, sometimes people claim that like, Paul goes by the name Paul because he's a new man. I don't know if that's really the case. He usually goes by Paul because he's pretty much exclusively hangs out in the Roman Empire, and that's how you would say the name. Anyway, the, this deep division between Jewish and Gentile Christians is what Paul is trying to help bridge with his lengthy discourse. So he starts out by his letter to the Romans by saying, Hi, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus. I'm hoping to actually come visit Rome sometime and spend some time with you. And then he says, now here's the thing, guys. We're all in the same boat. If you'll just look at the history, and he's addressing the division going on here. He's like, if you'll just look at the history, you'll see a long line of people who exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That's verse 23. Now, God will let you choose what you want. So he gave them, therefore, over to their sinful desires. And remember, sin is just a word that means missing the mark. He's like... They wanted something that missed the mark. They thought that would make them happy, so he let them miss the mark. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And, and this idolatry has led them to a place where they're filled up with every kind of wickedness. Evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice gossiping, slandering, hating God, being insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Dude, you see it all the time. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. He's just like, look around, man. You, you see the results of not worshiping God all over the place. Now, you Jews, as you're looking there and you're like pointing a judging finger, like you're not off the hook. God does not show favoritism, he says in verse 11 of chapter 2. Jews, you think sometimes because you have had the law of God, and here he's meaning the first five books of Moses, that you're qualified to be a light, a guide, an instructor, a teacher. But here's the thing. If you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So he says the, the moment you disobey the law, it's like you're not even Jewish. And newsflash, you all have broke the law, so you're not in some special place. Chapter 3, verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. He's like, we're all in the same boat, man. We're all under the power of sin. And then he quotes some Psalms from the Old Testament that say things like, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So listen, Paul says, all of you, Jews and Gentiles, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he goes on, he says, but this is why our message as Christians is so valuable. Like you're trying to say that because of your heritage, you're valuable, but it's not. It's because you have believed in Christ. All of us are justified freely by Christ's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Then he goes on and he says, it's not about you. Stop comparing yourself to other people and listen. And and as he says this, he is straight talking to you right now in your current suburban life. He says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, now this statement is hard for a lot of Latter-day Saints, but I'm going to say it as clear as day. You are not saved by you. That is self-idolatry. And as Paul has pointed out, it has a long history of failure. You are saved by Jesus. To illustrate this, he then uses the example of Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 and verse 22 there. And he goes on, he says, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He's like, it was before. He's like, Abraham was credited by God before he obeyed the law. He's like, this is a big deal. He received circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He is saying Abraham gets credit before he did the acts of the law. He's making it clear that Abraham's trust and faith are what got him credit, not his works. The good things we do and the covenants we make grow out of our love for God and trust for God. It's not the other way around. Paul goes on and he says, For if those who depend on the law, for those who depend on the law, the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. He's like, if you're depending on the law, newsflash, you've screwed up already. That promise is not going to take you to heaven. It's only going to condemn you to hell. On the other hand, he says, those that trust in faith, the promise of God's grace becomes guaranteed. He says, just go back to Abraham. Abraham actively trusted God would give him a son When he was basically good as dead, he was so old and his wife was long past menopause. And it was due to that confidence, that active trust that he was rewarded with covenants, not that he was so obedient to covenants that he had faith. It doesn't work the other way around. And and you've heard this word a couple of times, this idea of justification. Justification, the way Paul means it, means to be declared righteous or to be declared in a good state with God. This is huge. He says, we have been justified or we have been declared that we are just fine with God through faith, through our active trust in him. We have peace with God 
through the Lord our Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace. What he means by this grace is this state of being justified, this state of living in a manner that brings about bounty, this state of, of being right before God and feeling peace in our lives. That's the grace he's talking about. And the result of this is that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He's like, you felt it. You trusted God. His Spirit came in and it felt so good. And let's be super clear here. Paul says Jesus died for us long before we were worthy of it. It is not because we deserved or earned goodness that it, um, it is because he is goodness. He says, we have now been justified or made right by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, and he's just using this as an illustration saying, hey, we, we, we were separated from God because we chose ways that didn't match up with him. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? He's just saying, it wasn't when we were good that we were saved. We were saved when we were God's enemies. We were justified when we were on the wrong path. Christ's redemption happened while we were sinners. We were rescued while we were lost. You don't need a rescue when you're already on the shore. You need a rescue when you're in the middle of the ocean. It is not because you deserve it that Jesus did this for you. This is such a big point to understand. Jesus already rescued you. You don't have to be good enough to experience this. This is such an important point. Think of it this way, Paul says. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. Basically, this is a huge thing that we'll come back to other times. The main consequence of sin is death. And as Jacob says it in 2 Nephi 9, that then puts you in the power of Satan. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin. When it says that Jesus suffered for our sins, it means he suffered death and entered into Satan's territory and therefore came out of it. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So he's saying, hey, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And death entered the world because of one man, Adam. So he says it would then follow logic that the actions of one man could reverse it. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace for those who receive the gift of the righteous reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Are you following? He's saying we are saved through Jesus. It's already happened. He's already pronounced us in good standing before God. Now, some of you, your immediate reaction is then, well, then do I just do whatever I want? Like, why do we even have rules? This is so dumb. 
And we really are resistant to this idea. We want to earn our way into heaven. And I don't know why we want, want so badly to feel like I earned this. Nobody else gave this to me. I think we're just terrified of being in anyone's debt. I think it makes us feel lesser. And the natural man in us, our egos, want to, to feel like I did this. And it's in opposition to this free gift that Jesus offers. We're resistant to it in our souls. And and so Paul talks to this idea. Like, do we just do whatever I want? He says, what? Shall we then say, shall we go on and sinning? He's like, no. We've died to sin. We're not going to live in sin. I love this point. He's, he's saying, we don't do good works to be saved. Like the, the, he's like, you're missing the point. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. It's a massive difference. Being a Christian, he goes on, starting with the public declaration of our affiliation at baptism is the start of a new life united with Christ. It's the start of a new way of being. Before he says you were slaves to sin and you were free from the control of righteousness. Free from the control of righteousness. That's an interesting way to put it. But now that you've been set free from sin, you become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life eternal in Christ Christ. Jesus, our Lord. Now, before you were free from the control of righteousness, now you're under the control of righteousness. And and this word righteousness, this is not worthiness. It it comes from this, this phrase or this word that means a wise manner of being that leads to a bounteous life. A wise manner of being that leads to a bounteous life. If you're under the control of righteousness, you just start living in a way that leads to a more bounteous life. Paul is just saying, you're not good to earn God's love. That's a done deal. It's already happened. Signed, sealed, delivered. You're good because that's the natural way of being for a reborn person. Some of you are like, well, I, I screw up all the time. Yeah, it's also the natural way of being a human. It's not about being perfect. It's about having a trajectory that's seeking to be in harmony with God. Not too much and not too little. If you screwed up, well, then you screwed up. Welcome to planet Earth. Try again. Seriously, at this present moment, begin again. Begin to believe that you are made right with God and that you are a chosen apprentice in his kingdom with something special to give and then get to work. Having faith means actively doing the mental work. That's how he describes it in lectures on faith, uh, the seventh lecture, third paragraph, is that faith is mental action. So do the mental action to let go of your fear. Do the mental action to let go of your shame. Give it to Jesus Christ and start living fresh. The present moment is a clean slate. What will you create? How will you partner with God 
thanks to being justified or made right by his son. To build up the kingdom of God right here, right now. I'm really excited about what you're going to build. You have unique contributions, man. I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for you in my life. Good luck. Live this exciting message. See you next time. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.